Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Psalm chapter 22, verses 1 through 11. This is found on page 457 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Welcome again. My name is Bill Gorman. If I haven't had a chance to meet you before, really glad that you are here on the Sunday before Christmas. And on the Sunday before Christmas, you may be wondering who picked the scripture reading. Do we let the Grinch uh, select our scripture reading this morning? Uh, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This isn't a kind of passage that we typically read during the Christmas season. Uh, now, Holly mentioned earlier the Formed Life journals, and so if you're working through that Formed Life journal for this sermon series, you've been thinking about Psalm 22 this week, so you kind of knew that was coming, but you may still be wondering, why did, why did they pick this psalm uh, for the Sunday before Christmas or the Christmas season at all. Well, that's what we want to discover together today as we look at this passage. But before we do that, let me just offer a word of prayer for us as we begin to engage um, this passage in in this text. Let me do that now. Uh, Father in heaven, as we turn to your word, may your spirit rest upon us. Uh, Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and also in our living. We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, almost from the time that we can talk, we start to ask the question, why? So about age two or three, kids start asking why all the time. And if you have a a child in your life who's in that age range, whether it's a parent, a grandparent, aunt, uncle, uh, you know, these little kids, they just ask why all the time. And I I think a big part of it is because they're kids, they just haven't been around for for that long. So they don't know how stuff works. Uh, They don't take anything for granted. And so they just, they want to know why. They want to know why. And so actually uh, this uh, Christmas season, my oldest daughter, Lucy, she just turned nine actually last Sunday, uh, asked she was asking this season, like, why Christmas trees? Like, we've always had a Christmas tree, right? But why do we do this Christmas tree thing? And it's like, yeah, if you haven't thought about that, it's a good question. Why? Like, what did this tree ever do to you that you cut it down and drug it into your house out of its uh, forest that was enjoying? Um, why, why do we do that? And uh, so we got some books from the library. So let's, let's figure this out. What's the history of the Christmas tree? 
And so we did a little research on this. And Christmas trees, uh, the idea of evergreen trees being kind of a symbol in religion goes back way, like to the Roman Empire, kind of pagan religion, just as a sign of like long life or everlasting life because these branches always stay green, right? Um, But it seems like when Christians began to kind of pull that out of kind of the pagan realm and bring that into to Christianity as a symbol was in the Middle Ages, the church would do these plays to help explain gospel stories, biblical stories to people who couldn't read, that kind of thing. They would put on these plays. Well, on December 24th, which is right Christmas Eve, that was the saint day for Adam and Eve. And they would do these plays about the Garden of Eden. And this kind of evergreen tree was a symbol of the tree of life or kind of the, the Garden of Eden. So this is kind of how, you know, a little bit of research I was able to find. This is how it began. But then in the, the 1600s, um, 1500s, Martin Luther is maybe credited. It's a little bit of a legend. It's hard to know for sure. Maybe the first one to kind of put lights or candles. You know, they didn't have electric lights then, but put candles on a Christmas tree, which always is a little bit nervous to you. Like, we're going to light candles and put them on this tree that's no longer connected to the ground. Hopefully that goes well. Um, but that, that became a kind of a symbol of, of Christmas and light, and, and, and here we are today. We have all these, these Christmas trees. So hopefully as we grow up, right, we continue to stay curious. We continue to ask these kind of why questions about things like Christmas trees in our lives. But as we grow older, it's true, like, we start asking why questions that are sometimes a little tougher. Uh, why questions that don't necessarily have an easy answer in a book from the library or a Wikipedia page or a magazine article, right? And I think in many ways, Christmas can prompt some of those whys in, in kind of unique ways, right? Why is about, why do, we, why do we just do this season to ourselves? You know, all the, all the parties and the planning and the, the gift purchasing and the gift wrapping, and maybe you just wonder, is this all just a consumer thing? Is, it, is, it really, is there a deeper meaning to this, is this, or is this just a way for, you know, companies to, to make a, a profit during this time? Or, or maybe you're asking why because there's so much heartache around Christmas. The Christmas remen- reminds you of, of now empty chairs, or on the table. Reminds you of maybe chairs that were never filled. You know, you, you longed for a child or for a spouse or, or maybe a, a, you're waiting for someone to come home. A parent you're estranged from or a child that left. There's just these empty chairs, empty spots, and you wonder why. Uh, for others, maybe it, this season, it's a reminder of, of kind of maybe material lack that you, you want to buy nice things for your friends or your family. You just feel like, I just I can't do it. Things are too tight. Or, or maybe on the other hand, it's a reminder of your plenty that, yeah, it's, it's not, there's no, no pressure in trying to fill the, the space under the Christmas tree financially. But, but you're also kind of, but like you also know it's just never enough. Like it never really satisfies. And so you, you wonder why. I think for other of us, we don't actually start wondering why until we get the credit card bill in January. And they're like, oh, why did we do that? Right? And for some, I think Christmas just highlights the loneliness of the season for many. So why do we do this to ourselves? Again, maybe you haven't thought about why, uh, or Christmas being the season to ask why. But Fleming Rutledge, in her collection of Advent writings, uh, she's a a pastor, an an author, Uh, she makes this observation, which I think is really important. She says, Advent is the season 
that when properly understood does not flinch from the darkness that stalks us all in the world. Advent begins in the dark, and it moves toward the light. But the season should never move too quickly or too glibly, lest we fail to acknowledge the depth of the darkness. Advent bids us to take a fearless inventory, I love this line, of the darkness, the darkness without and the darkness within. So Advent isn't necessarily the time to drown our wise in a flood of holiday cheer. Advent, if we let it, can, yes, be a season of celebration and anticipation and joy, but it can also be a time to consider our hardest wise. Our hardest wise. And when we turn to Psalm 22, which I'd encourage you, if you haven't done that yet or you looked at during the Scripture reading, to pull out that pew Bible and turn to Psalm 22 and look at this passage with me, or even just pull it up on your, your phone if you have it. Just put Psalm 22 into your Google um, search box and any number of websites will come up that will have that text. But I'd love for you to follow along with me as we look at this. And Psalm 22, I think, begins with the hardest why that any person of faith, any person who, who claims to have a relationship with Jesus can ask. And that's the question, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? And again, for the person of faith, it's not just why am I sick or why did I lose my job, or why is this relationship such a struggle, or any number of those things. You have those whys, but if on top of that, you also feel like God has abandoned you in the midst of those things, that's really hard. I mean, think about that for a moment. If, if you're a person who has no belief in God, and you have a lot of hard things happening, you may ask, well, why are these things happening? But if you're a person of faith, you're asking, why are these things happening, and why does God not seem to be with me in the midst of them? The one you've trusted. So look again at verses 1 and 2. And, and I, I'm going to read them again, and I want you to hear the anguish in these lines. Because the words of Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, are, are not sort of the, the disinterested wonderings of a philosopher, right, who's considering the problem of evil in their study. I know these are the sobs of someone whose heart is breaking and is face down on a tear-soaked floor. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry day by day, but you don't answer and by night, but I feel no rest. And, and again, notice here, David's not in inquiry mode. He's not, he's not wondering if God has left him. He's not like, God, are, are you here, and I just don't feel you? And he's, he's past that. He has come to the conclusion in an emotional reality of God is gone. He's not asking if God has forsaken me. He's saying, God, you have forsaken me, and I want to know why. Why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you answering? Why have you abandoned me? And that's anguish. That's the feeling of anguish. The feeling of abandonment is anguish. And recently I was reading a book and it was describing the emotion of anguish and, and what that's like for us as human beings. And the author used this painting from 1880 by uh, the painter August Friedrich Schenk as a picture that captures better than any words this emotion of anguish. And the, the painting simply called anguish. And it's this mother sheep 
with her dead lamb, surrounded by these crows. It's like if you look at that painting long enough, or at least for me, it's like either I want to start crying or I just want to turn it off and look away. Because that's what David feels in this psalm, the anguish of abandonment. And if, you know, if I'm honest, I actually don't really like Psalm 22 that much. It's never been, it's like I, I, I'm a person who in my life, I've read the Psalms a lot, and so many of them I really love. But honestly, when I get to Psalm 22, I just want to skip over to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down and grieve. That's, that's the Psalm I love. But when I read those opening lines of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you ever said, I don't want to feel those things. I don't even necessarily want to remember the moments in my own life when I have felt those things. I just want to move to Psalm 23. I don't want to sit here. Because that question, why are you forsaking me? I think it's the hardest, again, question that any Christian can ask. And I actually remember one of the most poignant moments for me when I, when I felt that reality was it, was it was senior year of college. And it was right at the beginning of, of Christmas break, that senior year, and this relationship that I had set all of kind of my future hopes and dreams on just imploded in the most unexpected way. And I remember traveling home for Christmas just utterly confused, feeling hurt, betrayed, abandoned. And, and I had this memory of, of, of being on the the floor in my, I was like in, staying in my parents' study in their, in their house, like on an airbed, but I'd just be laying like down my face in the carpet in the study. And just, I don't know that I said those words, but certainly the feeling in my heart was like, God, like, where are you? Why have you let this happen? I don't know what I'm going to do next. And yet in that moment, I, I found myself praying it's like even in the sense of, of feeling abandoned, of feeling lost, of feeling alone, I realized it, it, almost out of just force of habit, but I was like, I couldn't help but pray. And, and here's the thing. Asking why is as inevitable as it is kind of normal in our experience as human beings living in a world that does not work the way it's supposed to work. It's what you do after you ask why that really matters. Do we turn away from God in those moments of asking why? Or do we continue to turn toward him? And the, the, the temptation in those moments is to turn away from God and to start talking about him to others rather than continuing to talk to him. And what we see in Psalm 22 is that even though David begins with this, God, you, you're not here, I feel abandoned, forsaken by you, he continues to go on for like 30 more verses talking to God. He continues to cry out to God. He continues to bring his feelings of abandonment and hurt to God over and over again. And John Stott, writing about this psalm, he actually points out three places where David, in the psalm, sort of reminds himself of the ways that God is with him, and yet still feels abandoned by God at the same time. So it's both this kind of, you, there's this wrestling in the psalm of, yes, God, like you here, you're here, but you're not here. And I, I just want to show you these three spots. So first of all, he says, look at verse four, and it's almost as David 
says, maybe I can find some hope in the past. He says, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. So here's David saying, like, he's looking into the past. He's remembering his history. He's remembering the history of his ancestors and saying, God, you have done, you've shown up for people in the past who've trusted in you. And maybe you've done this as you've, if you've read your Bible or if you looked around at your friends, and neighbors who you, you know have a faith in Jesus and you say, God, like, I've seen that you've responded to people in the past. I, I, I see this, I read these accounts of you, you rescued your people out of Egypt. I mean, just last week, my friend needed, he needed a new car. They were praying for healing and, and it showed up. Like, I've seen you answer prayers in my friends' lives and in, in the lives of your people in the past. Why won't you do that for me? Uh, second, David looks around him and there are people who are, who are mocking him for trusting in God. They mock him. They're like, you idiot. Like, why would you even do that? Verse 7, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's like David's saying, God, I've, I've trusted in you, but now I'm actually being mocked for the fact that I've trusted in you. So again, he's calling to, to mind in his own history. God, I've, I've trusted in you, and now people are mocking me for that trust in you. And then again, he looks at his own history. God, there's never been a time when I haven't trusted you. And, and, and yet this is how you repay me in my moments of greatest need. It feels like you're not there. He says this in verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for the trouble is near, and there is none to help. And David said, I've trusted you from the moment of my first breath. From the moment I was born, I've trusted you, God. Why are you not here with me now? And, and then he goes on for the next 10 verses to describe um, what he feels for all these people attacking him. It's like animals surrounding him. He feels poured out like water. He feels like he's melting like wax. His hands and feet, it's like they've been pierced. It's like his garments are being divided up and they're casting lots for his clothing. Now, if you've grown up in the church or you're at all familiar with the biblical story as we read those lines from Psalm 22, you may hear echoes. You may hear echoes of someone else, someone else's story in the scriptures. But does this sound familiar? Because these descriptions that David gives of his hands and feet being pierced, his garments being divided, they, they, for David, they seem like they're kind of hyperbolic metaphors, right? Describing, this is what it feels like, God, right now. It feels like my hands are being pierced, my feet are being pierced. It feels like my clothes are being divided up. But for King David's great, 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 great grandson, King Jesus, these lines would cease to be poetic metaphors. They would become the reality that he experienced. They're not just hyperbolic kind of descriptions of an emotional state that David's describing, but they're actually literally what happens to him. 
And on the cross, Jesus cries in anguish words the, the words of King David from over a millennia before that were penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that moment of Jesus crying from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That moment is the answer to all of our why questions. And the answer isn't a why or a what. God's answer to our greatest whys is a who. God's greatest answer to our whys is a who. The biggest answer is a who. God answers our why with a who. And if you only write down one thing today, I, I encourage you to write down that. That God answers our whys with a who. God's response to our hardest whys is the greatest who. A king who is with us. Because when Jesus was born, it had been 400 years since God's people had had a prophet, had someone who was coming and speaking his word to them. And in the biblical story, they had moved into the land after they had been rescued out of Egypt, but they have all these kings and they turn away from God and they go away into exile for 70 years and eventually they, they come back from Assyria and Babylon and they, they arrive back in the land and they rebuild the temple and things are beginning to say, maybe there's hope, maybe God's Messiah, maybe his rescue is going to come and then they don't hear anything for 400 years. And you've and you got to think that so many of those people we're wondering, God, have you forsaken us? Have you left us? Where are you? And yet, in that moment in the first century, there is a moment where an unwed teenage girl in the tiny village of Nazareth is visited by an angel who announces that the wait is over that there is a who coming, that the God who meets us in our every why is coming to rescue. And this angel says to Mary, says, greetings, favored woman. And then listen to what he says next. The Lord is with you. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus and he will be called great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give him, again, notice where we're at today, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, of his ancestor David who wrote this Psalm 22 that we're reflecting on. He will reign over the house of Jacob, that's another name for God's people Israel, and his kingdom will have no end. And you know what? Forty weeks after the angel spoke those words to Mary, she gave birth to Jesus in a cave in Bethlehem, and she held Emmanuel, God with us, in her arms. She held God's greatest who in her arms. And you know, though, that cave in Bethlehem, it's just a mere five miles away from the hill outside of Jerusalem where that baby boy, 33 years later, grown into a man, would die on a cross and cry out from that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want you to imagine with me Jesus growing up 
Because Jesus, he's this Jewish boy, right? And so he's growing up, going to the synagogue, learning the scriptures. The Psalms are the songbook of God's people. It's our songbook. And Jesus would have read these Psalms. He would have sung these Psalms. These are songs to be sung. And so, and, and again, we don't even know, I don't know how all this works together, but Jesus, who is fully God and all-knowing and, and fully human in, in one person, two natures, I, I don't know how this works and what Jesus becomes aware of, but can you imagine him growing up knowing in some way, even as a child, that one day these words that he was singing in Psalm 22 wouldn't just be metaphors, wouldn't just be hyperbole, but would be his reality. What would that have been like for him? And, and this, friends, is what makes Christmas so unique. Because as, as Christians, there's a profound reality that we have a God who came and was wounded and died for us. No other story, no other religion has that. Os Guinness, writer, thinker, puts this, he says, no other God has wounds. No other God has wounds. No other God was pierced for you. And because Jesus, and, and this is another one of those, all this Trinitarian mystery of, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in all the mystery of that moment that Jesus experienced being forsaken by God the Father on the cross so that you and I would never be forsaken by him. And this means that we can bring our toughest, our hardest, our most anguished wise to him and know that he is with us in them. Jesus' final words on the cross are, it is finished, which are actually remarkably similar to the final words of Psalm 22, which say that he has done it. He has done it. It is finished. He has done it. The rescue has been accomplished. That God has not abandoned us. That his salvation is near. That he is coming for us. Christmas teaches us that whatever the answer to our why question might be, it can't be that you have been forsaken. And author Marianne Strutherman writes this. She says, eventually I gave up trying. And I was trying to answer the why question. Life has taught me that searching for why behind suffering is like trying to fit an elephant onto the head of a pin for the purpose of balancing my checkbook. It's impossible to do, and even if I could, it wouldn't help me in the slightest. And I think that's a really profound insight because I think sometimes as human beings we think, if only I could know why this bad thing happened, then I would be able to go on, I wouldn't feel so sad, I'd be able to heal. And I think we put way too much hope sometimes in what knowing why would actually do for us. So instead of focusing on why, focus on who. And because of our who, we can actually know a few of the answers we crave. And let me show you what I mean by that. So for example, when we experience pain and suffering, we often wonder if the question to why is that we're being punished. Have you ever felt that? You're going through some really hard situation, some thing, and you're like, God, are you, are you punishing me for my sin? And because of Jesus' death on the cross, because of his declaration that it is finished, we can know if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus, that the answer to why you're experiencing hardship is never that Jesus, rather that God is punishing you for your sin. Because Jesus has already received the punishment for your sin. 
And that doesn't mean that sometimes there aren't rippling consequences because of choices that we make, to be clear. But those consequences are not a punishment for your sin. Jesus has received the punishment for your sin. You are not being punished. God is not mad at you. In fact, remember last week's psalm in Psalm 103. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He's not going to remain angry forever. He's redeemed us. Nor, when you ask the question, is he, not only is he not punishing you, but nor is he abandoning you or stopped loving you. You will never be abandoned because, again, Jesus was abandoned for you on the cross so that you will never experience the abandonment that he experienced, the ultimate demonstration of his love. So whenever you ask why, the answer will never be that he's walked away from you. He says, Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Or if we wonder if our suffering is meaningless, and so we we ask why, but if Jesus rose from the grave, if he reigns as king victorious, nothing is ever meaningless. That's why that now he's using all these things, as hard as they may be, to make us into the person he wants us to be. That his highest ideal for me isn't a long and comfortable life, but for me to be conformed to the image of his son, for us to become like Jesus. And he will use whatever it takes to accomplish that. C.S. Lewis sometimes comes those hard moments, severe mercies, where, where God is allowing hardship into our life as a mercy to make us into the kind of person that he desires us to be. And through it all, Christmas means that he is with you in the midst of it. And Dr. Julia Sadusky, who was with us in November, when she was with us, she said this, that the God of the universe stepped into a body with limitations, and he joins you in your suffering. He's there with you now, and he will never leave you. And sometimes all we need most is just to know that we're not alone, that he's with us. And when you know you have a who, who is the answer to your whys, you can begin to move toward praise. Not overnight, maybe not all the time, but you can actually begin to move toward praising the who who has come for you in the midst of your wives. And that's actually what you see happening in Psalm 22. Because again, as someone who often skips over Psalm 22 in reading my Bible, this psalm actually ends in this really profound place of hope and celebration. Ten verses of praise toward the end. Uh, This is my favorite one of them. It's verse 24. He says, For he is not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but he listened when he cried for help. I mean, David moves from a place of, God, where are you? I'm all alone. You're not with me. To the place of saying, you listened when we cried for help. You haven't abandoned us. You haven't looked away from us. You have a who who has not hidden his face from you. And so this Christmas, bring your wise to the one who is with you. Bring your wise to the one who is with you. And, and as I look around this room, I know so many of your stories. And, and we have journeyed together through some of the toughest whys. I, I just think about looking at some of the faces in this room, things that we've been through this year, that we've, we've shed tears together in hospitals and at gravesides, that we've walked through phone calls from doctors and diagnoses, financial hardships, relational collapse, 
And there are so many other stories in this room that I, that I don't know. But you know them. God knows them. These whys. And, and maybe you have whys. Maybe you have questions about whys that you've actually never shared with anyone before. And you're, you're wrestling this morning. What I want us to do with a, as kind of a way of responding to this is there should be some index cards like this that are somewhere near the end of the pew or maybe in the middle of the pew. I want you to grab that index card. Find a pen somewhere. There again, there should be pens out there. And, and I want you to write down a moment. I'm going to give us some time. The band is actually, that's why they've come up here. The, the band is actually going to play a song. So you're going to have a, a few minutes to think about this. But I want you to write down on that card a why that you have. God, like, why have you allowed this? Why has this happened? I want you to write down, and again, don't be nervous. Be as honest as you can. God can take it. He already, he already knows them, right? So write down that why. And, and maybe you're in a place this morning, you're like, man, Bill, like, I walked in and I was so excited to just praise God this morning because everything in my life is awesome, and now the service seems like it's a little bit of a downer. Um, if you, that's the place you're in, maybe use this moment to write out a praise of just a like a praise, a thanks, a God, thank you for the amazing things that are happening in my life. But write those down, and then in a few minutes when we come to celebrate communion, you're going to take this card, and there's some wooden boxes at each one of the communion tables, and I just want you to drop those cards in that box as a way of sort of actually physically, tangibly bringing your whys to the greatest who, who's given his life for you, to trade your whys for the life of the one who was pierced for you. So I'm going to give you a moment to work on that. We're going to hear a song played. If after you've written that card, if you want to join in in singing, um, do that, and then I'll come back up and we'll celebrate communion together.